Well, good morning. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'd like to start this morning with a statement, and I just want you to listen to it and see how you react. How does this statement strike you? Here it is. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. How does that strike you? What do you think when you hear that? Because that statement, God wants you to be happy, can sometimes be a bit of a stumbling block in a way. Because some Christians would loudly agree with it and say, yes, God wants me to be happy. And they might even take that thought too far. In fact, sometimes they do. They assume that God only wants them to be happy. And they end up projecting themselves upon God so that God certainly is just a a big version of me. He wants the same things I do. He likes the same things I do. And so God is just there to affirm me and to basically... uh, in every decision I make, be there to sort of pat me on the back. Taken to that extreme, God is like a permissive parent who bends over backwards to ensure their child never fails or experiences any hardship at all. That's one way to take this statement. God wants you to be happy. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are some Christians who would be downright uncomfortable with it. After all, God for them is righteous and holy, and and such he is. But they conceive of God as sort of the stern ruler of the universe who's not quick to condone fun or joviality. They don't see God as a permissive parent, but they see him as more of a distant father who only rarely lets his smile be seen. Now, I don't think that we need to run to either extreme this morning to affirm the truth that God wants you to be happy, or let me put it in a better way. Instead of saying God wants me to be happy, maybe we should say, God desires that we rejoice. Because happy kind of has the idea of happenstance, happenings, that it's happiness tied to something that happens. I'm happy because the sun is shining today and everything is working out. Whereas joy is rooted in something perhaps deeper than just happenstance. So I think maybe instead of saying God wants you to be happy, perhaps we should say it better, God wants you to rejoice. And I think that is in Scripture. Jesus in his upper room discourse right before he went to the cross said to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So Christians have the joy of Christ and God desires it to be in us to the full. We ought to be joyful people. Here's the question. Are you? Are you a joyful person? Are you someone that people will look at you and say, the joy of the Lord is in that person? Here's the sad reality is oftentimes that's not the case. Sometimes we're not joyful. We certainly don't feel joyful. In Paul's words to the Philippians, later on in chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And sometimes that sort of doesn't match our experience. It doesn't match our attitude and our outlook. We're not rejoicing people. We're pretty downcast if we're quite honest. The truth is our joy can and sometimes is extinguished. Rather than having Christ's joy remain in us and be full, we're empty. 
We have no signs of the joy of the Lord in us. And there may be a number of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into all of them, but I do want to ask this question and, and try and answer it this morning. How do we have the joy? How do we have joy in Christ and keep it? How do we have joy in Christ and hold on to it, maintain it? Well, that's why we want to look at Philippians chapter 3. Now, in the book of Philippians, there are many themes woven together here, and one of them is joy. We haven't said much about it. Some people look at Philippians and say this is the book of joy, and they make that the central theme. And I can see why. There's a lot of references to joy. And I've kind of looked at it more in terms of partnership, in terms of fellowship in the gospel, striving together. Yet, I don't want to ignore this important theme of joy which runs throughout. And it comes through in chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. That's a command, by the way, an imperative. It's something we are called to do. If joy were automatic for the Christian, there would be no need for a command. But I think the command is necessary because there are many factors that would steal our joy that would cause us to be derailed from the experience of true Christian rejoicing. So as we look at Philippians 3, and we'll only look at the first three verses this morning, I want to offer to you four suggestions for how to maintain your joy in a world that would derail our joy. In a world that doesn't give us much cause for rejoicing, here's four suggestions for maintaining true joy. The first is be careful who or what you listen to. Be careful who or what you listen to. Originally, I just had this as who you listen to, but I think the what is also important. Because sometimes messages come to us, not through a person, but through some medium. And it may be divorced from a person at all, but it's still, if we listen to those messages, it can sometimes set us on the wrong path. Remove us from the joy of the Lord that ought to be ours. Life is all about input and output. There's what's coming into our minds, which shapes the way we think and how we look at the world. And then there's the output, the things that we uh, that come out of the storehouse of our heart. So what's your input? What are you listening to? Or perhaps what messages are you listening to? That is an important factor as to whether you will be a joyful person or not. Let's look at verse 1. Philippians 3.1 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. In typical preacher fashion here, Paul says, finally, my brethren. You notice, by the way, that there's still two whole chapters to go. This is famous for preachers, right? I'm wrapping it up. Yeah, right. Well, I read a story, actually, one commentator recorded it. A young boy was sitting next to his father in church, and he leaned over to his dad and said, what does the preacher mean when he says, finally? The dad said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Maybe you feel like that sometimes here. But this word, finally, has the idea of what comes after, a transition. So from talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus, these two fellow workers in the gospel, Paul is going to make a transition now to this theme of joy, a command, rejoice in the Lord. He says that in verse, in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, talking to the Philippians, you rejoice in the Lord. This command is given. And it's interesting to me. 
that the command rejoice almost demands an object, doesn't it? If you're going to tell someone to rejoice, you've got to say more. If I just said this morning, listen, church, I want us all to stand up and rejoice this morning, you would kind of look around and say, okay, why? What's the news? Why are we rejoicing? Now, if I said, rejoice because all of our debts are paid off, or rejoice because you know, some long-lost brother or sister has been reunited with us, then you say, oh, okay, I have a reason to rejoice now. Notice what Paul says, though. Rejoice in the Lord. He is the source of our rejoicing, and he is the reason for our rejoicing. We rejoice because of him. He's the reason. And Jesus is the more stable source of joy than anything else we can have. In fact, he's the only stable source of joy. We rejoice in him and through him. Anything else will prove to be temporary. You know, if I rejoice in a really good ice cream cone on a hot day, it'll be gone in a matter of minutes. And that is a good picture of when we rejoice in other things. And I think this is one of the reasons why people fail sometimes to have the joy in them is because their joy is rooted in something temporary. Their joy is rooted in, in the success of their children, which is not a wrong thing, by the way, to rejoice about. But if that's the root of your joy is the success of your children, well, children can disappoint. Some people's joy is rooted in my job, in my hobby, in my career that I pursue. Uh, sometimes people rejoice in their church. These are all things that we can certainly enjoy the pleasure of, but to say our joy is rooted in those things, that means when those things are gone, so is our joy. Rejoice, he says, in the Lord. The Lord never fails. This is there's, If there's any reason to rejoice this morning, it is because of the Lord. He's the only thing that really would cause this kind of rejoicing in our hearts. One preacher from generations past said it well, and I want to quote him. He said this, The joy of the Lord arises from leaving all our burdens at his feet, from believing that he has forgiven the past as absolutely as the tide obliterates children's writing in the sand, that nothing can come which he does not appoint or permit, that he is doing all things as wisely and as kindly as possible, that in him we have been lifted out of the realm of sin, sorrow, and death into the realm of divine light and love, and that we are already commenced the eternal life, and that before us forever is the fellowship with him, so rapturous and exalting that human language can only describe it as indescribable. We rejoice in the Lord because we're forgiven. Rejoice in the Lord because he is ours, because he is. Our, our rejoicing and our joy ought to be rooted to the Lord. If it is, then we can have true joy. Here's the problem. Sometimes we listen to other messages. Sometimes we listen to other voices besides that of the Lord. How do we maintain joy and not lose it? Well, we have to be careful who we listen to. Paul gives a positive and a negative example here. Positive is himself. Look at verse 1. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He says, I know there's a lot of voices out there that are talking to you, that are telling you how to live and how to think. He says, for me, it's not tedious for me to write to you again. It's, it's no problem. 
By the way, in American culture, somehow we've gotten this idea that if someone tries to help us, it's almost like we have to apologize. You know, like if, if I come up and I'm going to help somebody carry something, oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Don't, no, you don't. It's almost like we're, and that's sort of the polite thing to do. And what do I say whenever somebody says, it's no problem. It's, it's not a problem. Let me help you. Why can't we just you know, accept help? I don't know. But that seems to be what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, don't apologize. It's no problem for me to write to you. I have no qualms about sitting down and writing another letter saying the same things. Now, what are the same things? Probably the command to rejoice. What Paul is probably saying here is, when I was with you in Philippi, I preached and taught about this truth, rejoice in the Lord. And, and it's no problem for me to write it to you again because I know there are other voices out there contending for your attention. It's not a problem. I'll sit down and do it any day of the week. And that's what he does. He writes to them a letter to encourage them to rejoice in the Lord. And he says this is for your safety. You notice that at the end of verse 1? But for you it is safe. It's a safeguard. Interestingly, this word is a rare word, but it's the same word used for when the religious leaders sealed the tomb of Jesus so that no one could steal his body. They sealed it up. They kept it guard. And, and Paul is saying, it's not a problem for me to write to you again because my words are going to keep you safe, are going to protect you, are going to anchor you to the truth so that you're not misled, so that your joy does not dissipate. So we have to listen to truth if we're going to have the joy of the Lord, if we're going to keep it. Because if we're not listening to the truth, our joy will slowly disappear. He also gives a negative example. Look at verse 2. This is where he launches into almost a tirade. There's, there's a dramatic change of tone, isn't there, in verse 2. He goes from talking about rejoice in the Lord to verse 2. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. So a threefold warning. Beware, beware, beware. Look out for these people. It's a negative example. He, these are the ones who would lead you away, who if you listen to their message, you will no longer be rejoicing in the Lord. He begins by saying, beware of dogs. Now, at the college Ashley and I graduated from, we had a, a tradition where a student uh, would come up and they would receive their diploma at graduation. They would step up to the microphone and they would recite their favorite verse or uh, you know, life verse, something like that, and would step down from the platform. I always joked with people that I was going to get up there and quote Philippians 3.2a. Just walk up to the microphone and say, beware of dogs, and then just walk off. I don't know if the faculty would have liked that too much, so I never did it, but uh, I thought about it a lot. Beware of dogs. Now, you've seen that on a sign before, and rightfully so. Usually behind the chain-link fence, there's a dog snapping at you. But here, Paul is using it metaphorically. Uh, one commentator says it really quite well. He says... This metaphor of, of dogs is a metaphor that's full of bite. <laughs> Good point. Now today, you know, we think, when we think of dogs, most of the dogs we imagine are cute, cuddly pets. In fact, dog, domesticated dogs are probably the number one pet in America. But in ancient times, there weren't domesticated dogs. People didn't own dogs as pets. They were scavengers. They were street animals that would go around more like coyotes, or hyenas in Africa. 
scavengers going around tearing their prey apart, always searching for their next morsel. They were mangy and dirty and, and not pleasant to have around. They were not cute, cuddly pets. And so this is a little bit of insulting in a way, what Paul says. Beware of these dogs. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about some false teachers who belong to the sect known as the Judaizers. These were people who taught that you must keep the law, you must follow uh, circumcision and follow all these traditions and rituals if you want to be right with God. Faith is not enough, is what they would say. And these people followed Paul around, and he has numerous interactions with them. In fact, I think when you get to Philippians, there's almost a sense in which Paul is fed up with dealing with these people. Beware of dogs, he calls them. Which would have even more bite for Paul's opponents. Because remember, they take pride in their Jewish identity. We're Jews. And the Jews always referred to the Gentiles as those Gentile dogs. So Paul kind of turns the insult back around on them and basically says, listen, those who believe by faith are God's people. You're the ones who are the dogs. These people are promoting a false message that would mislead the Philippians. And as a result, their joy would be stripped from them if they listened to these people. Not only are they called dogs, he says, beware of these evil workers. Now, this is interesting to me because what has Paul just talked about in the previous chapter? These faithful fellow workers. Timothy and Epaphroditus labored with Paul in the work of the gospel. Not these people. They're not fellow laborers in the gospel. They are evil workers. They've got, a, they've got a mission of their own, but it's not the gospel mission. It's one to mislead and to tear down, not to build up. So these are evil workers. Third, though, he calls them the mutilation. Beware the mutilation. Again, these individuals, false teachers, promoted the rite of circumcision, which in Greek is the word peritome. Peritome means circumcision. Well, Paul essentially mocks them and calls them not the circumcision, but the mutilation, which is the word katatome. You can see it rhymes. So he kind of uses this almost, uh, you know, again, metaphor, but it's one with a, a sense of almost like a pun to it. Uh, interestingly, by the way, let me just point this out because it means a lot to me. Paul really shows himself to be a master preacher here because, number one, he said finally at the beginning of verse chapter 3. Number two, he uses a three-point alliterated outline in, chapter, in verse 2. Uh, he says basically, they are the kunos, dogs. They are the, kata, the kaka ergos, ergatos, the evil workers, and the katatome. So the, you got those rhyming Ks. That's, that's good. Um, nevertheless, though, he's warning against these false messages. There are going to be people who are going to come and preach a different message. And if you listen to it, you'll lose your joy. Be careful who you listen to. And this applies today as much as ever. We are surrounded by television and radio and internet and podcasts and books and magazines and articles. You name it. There is so much false teaching out there. Now, there's a lot of good teaching, too, I'll admit. And, and you can find a lot of it at the touch of a button. So by all means, avail yourself of the good stuff, but there's a lot of bad stuff out there too. And if we're not on our guard, if we're not careful who we listen to, we're liable to slip into false teaching, in which case our joy will slip away as well. 
Just think about this. Think about Philippi for a second. Paul has preached there. He's laid a good foundation in the gospel. And along come these false teachers, these dogs. And they come along saying, listen, you've heard the gospel preach, you know, believe, faith, all that. We're telling you keep the law. And so here's all these believers in this church, Lydia and the Philippian jailer who both came to Christ under the preaching of Paul. They're sitting there saying, you know, they're just living out their life in the joy of the Lord. And now somebody comes along piling on all these restrictions. You can't do this. You can't say that. You can't go there. You can't wear that. All these restrictions and requirements, the law is piled on their shoulders. And suddenly, life's not about serving God and rejoicing. It's about keeping the list, marking off all the requirements. And it saps the joy out of this church. You know, today... That message is still going around, and many others. Uh, the past year or so has shown, if anything, that there are so many opinions and counter-opinions out there, aren't there, on everything. That if you listen to one news network, you'll hear one story. You listen to another news network, you'll hear another story, and, and on and on it goes. And so we can see the importance of, who do you listen to? Where, where are you going to get truth from? Well, let me tell you, the Word of God is going to give you the truth. The more we are anchored to the Bible, the more we will have the joy of the Lord. If you listen to the false messages of the world or of false teachers or of anything else that veers from the word of God, then you are going to be misled and you will find your joy stunted. It matters who you listen to. So the question is, are you listening to the truth of God's word or have you found yourself listening to the teachings that would steer you away from the joy of the Lord? To maintain joy, you must be careful who you listen to. Second suggestion, be engaged in real worship. Be engaged in real worship. If you want to have joy and not lose it, be engaged in real worship. I thought about another word as well, and I kind of noted into my, my notes here. That is be engaged in regular worship as well. We'll say more about that in a minute. Look down at verse 3. In contrast to these dogs, these evil workers, the mutilation, he says, we are the circumcision, verse 3. He's talking about believers there. He's saying, listen, you're claiming that you're God's people because of, you know, you keep his laws. He says, listen, we, the church, those who have believed by faith in Christ, who have been born again, we're the true circumcision. Not, not made with hands, but the circumcision of the heart. We are the people of God, he is saying. And then he describes them with three phrases. And this is such a great little verse because if you want a really nice, concisely packaged definition of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, well, it means this. Worship in God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That's essentially what it means. To be God's people means these things. I want to take them point by point, though. And look first at those who worship God in the Spirit. So we're believers, he says, who are defined by those who worship God in the Spirit. You want to have joy? Be a worshiper. The text here says, we are, believers are those who are, worship God in the Spirit. They're, they're engaged in regular, real worship. Worship is such an interesting topic. Because anytime we talk about worship, almost always uh, 
we always think of it in terms of our own time and our own culture and even our own preferences. So when I say worship, typically what you're going to do is your mind is going to go to whatever it is you've experienced or prefer or whatever, and you're going to think of, oh, that service or that church or that style. And we have to sort of step back a little bit because the word here for worship is more than just that. It's actually a word that was used of the the worship in the Old Testament temple. The priests were said to engage in worship, which was more than just singing a song or performing a duty. It referred to all of their service to the Lord. And so when Paul says we are those who worship God in the spirit, he's not talking about those who come for an hour on Sunday morning and sit in a pew and sing some songs and put some money in the offering plate. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the person whose life is defined by worshiping God day in, day out. Worshiping God with their job. Worshiping God with their recreation. Worshiping God with their family. Worshiping God with all the activities of life. Not just the one hour, quote unquote, worship service on Sunday morning. He calls them to worship in the spirit. Through the Spirit. We have the Spirit. In contrast to those false teachers who are claiming it's through the law, he says it's worship through the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God, then you are His. And we are called to worship in the Spirit or by the Spirit. And we worship God. Do you notice that? That's a a significant point as well. We who worship God in the Spirit. We are not the object of worship. Did you know that? Worship is not essentially about us, is it, or how I feel. Now, granted, you know, worship can be a very uh, emotional thing for some people. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the point of worship. The point of worship is to exalt the name of Christ, to exalt the Lord, whether we feel it a certain way or not. Now, we ought to come with hearts that are right before the Lord, hearts that desire to please him, hearts that are, are in tune with his, in a way. But worship is about the Lord, not about us. It's not about my experience. But the question is, how can, joyful, how can worship be joyful if it's not about my experience? Because isn't joy something I experience? Well, think about it like this, and... and Take this as it is. It's an illustration. Not perfect, but hopefully helpful. When you were a kid, what did you look forward to on Christmas? Getting gifts. I think probably most of us did. Uh, you know, what's under the tree for me? And, and weeks before Christmas, I'm shaking the package to see if I can figure out what's inside. And probably the older you've gotten, especially if you have kids the more joy you get in giving gifts than getting them. That's, that's been the case with me. I think that's the case with a lot of parents, is that there's more joy in giving gifts than really getting them. In the same way, we ought to have more joy in giving worship than what we, quote, unquote, get out of it. What makes us happy, what brings us joy, is that God is being exalted. That's what makes us happy. Tell you what, there's nothing that can instill joy in a person more than being engaged in real, regular worship. And that word regular is important. Because if worship is something we just do sporadically, then 
oftentimes it, it works against our joy. And here I'm talking about the gathered worship of the church, real and regular. So what is worship? I mean, how would we even define that? Well, I think that it, one definition I found, or one helpful statement, interestingly enough, came from the preface of a hymn book called Sing Joyfully, appropriate title. And it says it this way, Worship has been defined as being preoccupied with God. How do we learn to become preoccupied with God? By cultivating intentionally, by deliberately turning our minds toward divine preoccupation, by developing habits and working on them. Intentional worship means a worshiper is not just going to church expecting that worship will happen, but intentionally means that a worshiper is going to church determined to make worship happen. Preoccupied with God. Now, preoccupied is usually a bad thing, isn't it? Like, I'm at work and I'm preoccupied with some, something. It means I'm distracted. Well, in this case, to be preoccupied with God means that no matter what you're doing in life, there's always this sense in which you can't stop thinking about God. And God is always in that, even though you may be engaged in something else, God is always at the forefront. One story I read in another place uh, talked about a man visiting the Amazon River Basin. And he met a Brazilian Indian man uh, through a translator. And this young man had recently come to Christ. And so uh, the visitor, missionary, whoever it was, asked this Indian, what do you like to do the most? And he expected something like, you know, hunting, fishing, uh, canoeing, something like that. And the Indian responded, being occupied with God. And thinking that he had something was lost in translation, he asked the translator again, no, ask him, you know, what do you, what do you like doing? And he said the same thing. And it's a good <laughs> definition, good understanding of what it means to be in worship, occupied with God. The problem is we are oftentimes too occupied with other things. Uh, someone once said, too many Christians worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Perhaps a, a very real indictment. Worship your work, work at play, and play at your worship. Sounds like a ticket to a joyless life to me. It might provide some brief happiness, but the kind of joy, if we're going to maintain real joy, we have to be engaged in Real, regular worship. So if you want to be joy-filled, don't neglect worship. Third, if we're going to maintain joy in this world, we need to honor Christ above all. Honor Christ above all. Look at verse 3. Not only are we to worship God in the Spirit, but rejoice in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. No doubt you've heard the little expression, and it, it actually bears true to some degree. That joy, J-O-Y, stands for Jesus, others, yourself. You remember that? Probably learned it in Sunday school at some point. Jesus, others, yourself. If you want joy, you need to put it in things in the right order. Put Jesus first, others next, and yourself last. Now, that people have modified that a little bit. But in this case, it does bear true. Jesus must be first in our lives, first in our hearts, first in our affections, if we are to have real joy. That's why he says in verse 3, we are those who rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't think that translation is particularly helpful here. 
Because it sounds like rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in Christ, they're the same word. They're not the same word. This word here for, in verse 3, really means to boast, to brag, to have confidence in and, and almost an undue, well, maybe not undue in this case, but to exalt something to a high place. Think about bragging. Somebody brags about themselves, they build themselves up. They put themselves up on the pedestal and talk about their accomplishments, their greatness. Well, the believer says, Christ is all and above all. He, he boasts in the Lord. In fact, I like the way it's translated in the New American Standard Bible. It says, we are those who worship in the Spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus. Take pride in him. It sounds very much like 1 Corinthians 1.31, which, by the way, is a reference to Jeremiah 9. He uses that same word. He says, let him who glory, glory in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what does it mean to boast in Jesus Christ? Well, boasting is not something we usually condone. Uh, normally we say don't be boastful. But that's because we're boasting in us. Here it's boasting in Christ. Why? Because he's worthy. We just sang that. He is worthy of all. You know, when we boast about something, we're showing that we value it, we honor it, we have confidence in it. Key word there, confidence. So if I'm going around boasting that, you know, nobody in this church can beat me at a game of checkers. Don't take that as a challenge. But if, if that was my boast, if I was going around saying, look, I'm the best checker player that there's ever been. You've never seen someone as good as I am, and I would dare anybody in this church to beat me. What is that telling you? Well, it tells you I'm a braggart, number one. Number two, it tells you that I've got a lot of confidence in my skills, right? He must have been practicing recently. And that's kind of what bragging, boasting communicates. So whenever I'm saying boasting in the Lord, boasting in Christ, I'm saying I have complete confidence in him. And you know what? That's well-placed. In fact, this statement, boasting in the Lord, contrasts quite well with the next statement, have no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is all in Christ, not in us. That's the key. Those who put Christ first. We put the spotlight on him. We boast in him because he is the one in whom all our confidence rests. He's my almighty savior. And apart from him, I have no boast at all. He's the redeemer of my soul in whom I trust. And such boasting is well-placed because Christ is indeed above all others in all of creation. It's to see Christ as precious above all. John Newton, who was the slave trader turned preacher, wrote the song Amazing Grace. When he was well past his retirement years, he was nearly blind and spoke in a, almost a whisper whenever he spoke places. And he needed an assistant that would come and help him. I don't know if you saw during our songs this morning, I have my own assistant who helps me. Um, but he had an assistant to kind of help him if he got stuck or things like that. Well, one Sunday, he delivered a message and he repeated the phrase, Christ is precious. He said it twice, and his assistant kind of nudged him and said, you already said that. And Newton turned to his helper and said loudly, I've said it twice, and I'm going to say it again. Jesus Christ is precious. And the room practically shook with the force of his words. 
See, Newton boasted in the Lord, boasted in Christ because his confidence was holy in him. Finally, though, if you want to maintain joy in this world, honor Christ above all, put him first. But finally, do away with self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is probably the biggest joy killer you can carry with you. Do away with self-righteousness. The last phrase in verse 3, have no confidence in the flesh. Pretty straightforward. Self-righteousness, of course, is, is just that. Confidence in the flesh. It's a smug attitude of feeling that one is pleasing to God because of his merits, his efforts. I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person, says the self-righteous man. The final statement in verse 3 is a description of a believer having no confidence in the flesh. Looks to Christ as his only hope. Only hope. In turn, we have zero confidence in ourselves. Confidence in the flesh was the very thing these false teachers were peddling. They were teaching people, listen, it's up to you. You've got to do this. Keep the law. It was building confidence in himself. And Paul knew that very well because he used to be one of these teachers. If you look at the next few verses, 4 through 7, he talks about his own litany, his, his own testimony as being one who had confidence in the flesh, of one who was self-righteous. And ultimately, it came up empty. He's been there. Paul's walked that road. He knows that it leads to nothing good. And it will sap the joy out of a person's life faster than anything. The believer has no confidence in the flesh. He must do away with self-righteousness. Anytime I read about self-righteousness, I can't help but think of the story from the Gospels, a parable that Jesus told of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember this? Jesus said two men were there in the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed with him with thus excuse me and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The tax collector, meanwhile, standing far off, who would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. One of those people had confidence in the flesh. One of them had no confidence in the flesh. Jesus asked the question, who went that day home justified? The obvious answer, the tax collector. Say he got it. So what are the marks of being a self-righteous person? Let me give you a five real quickly. Self-righteous people are proud and boastful. After all, they've done it themselves. They've got a right to boast. Pharisees certainly did that. They were proud and boastful. Self-righteous people deny or downplay their own failures. After all, they're good people. And they'll always minimize the wrong they've done and maximize their good. Self-righteous people are cruel and judgmental. They look down on others with contempt. They're not as good as they are. They're the ones who go around calling Gentiles dogs. Self-righteous people do not need anyone else. At least they don't think they do. Why do they need a savior? Self-righteous people do not know the joy of the Lord. And that is what we're after this morning. If we're going to maintain joy and have joy in life, 
We need to set aside self-righteousness. Now, there's a lot more I could say about confidence in the flesh, self-righteousness. But I want to save some of it because when we come back next time, we're going to talk about Paul's own, his own exercise in confidence and how it proved to be worthless. But I think it's worth noting here that if we want to have joy, we've got to abandon this idea of self-righteousness. So in the words of the Apostle Paul, finally, we're going to wrap this up. Finally, the central command in verses 1 through 3 is rejoice in the Lord. That's what we're called to do, to rejoice in the Lord. Now, that's not always our natural response. Now, normally, when I preach, I'll oftentimes start with the main idea, and then we'll develop out our points. But I wanted to save the main idea of this passage for the end, because I think this captures what this is all about, verses 1 through 3. Joy is found in the freedom of grace. When we listen to the voices of those who would promote confidence in the flesh, who would promote, like these people, you know, who are dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation, they're, they're robbing grace of what is truly amazing. It's not about grace. It's about your works. It's about what you do. But joy is found when we understand the freedom of grace. Paul had come to understand grace on the road to Damascus. He had come to know the grace of God. and Because of that, he had joy that couldn't be explained any other way. A joy he could never get through his own personal trying to attain the law. When grace is lost, so is joy. The more we live in the light of God's grace, worshiping in the truth, seeing Christ, not ourselves as the source of our righteousness, we will maintain the joy of the Lord in our lives. So the question is, are you joyful this morning? If you're not, you can be. Because joy is found in the freedom of grace, and grace is available. So you say, well... Read, there's just a lot of stuff in my life that I, I just can't be joyful because I can't get over the, these things. Well, that's what grace is for. So if you want to have joy, it's found in the freedom that's offered in the grace of God. We'd love to talk with you about that and share with you how you can know the grace of God and receive that and have true joy. And if you have joy... We maintain it by drawing near to the Lord and understanding the freedom that we have in grace.